Hey, MTA community. This is Brittany with a little pre-show disclaimer for you. We were so thrilled, Gene and I, to have a, a special guest on, Lisa Baskin-Wright. Again, she's been on before, and to chat about IEPs and the teacher shortage and everything to do with schools and our kiddos. And um, before we started recording, we had a little technical difficulty. We thought we figured it out, and we proceeded to record the episode. Turns out, we didn't have it figured out. Um, So we've spent a lot of time in post-production trying to clean up all the echoes and the extra reverberations that were heard. Um, It's not perfect, but we did the best we could, and we learned what not to do next time. (laughs) So we hope that you will stick around, and um, even though there's some echoey parts. Um, it's still worth a listen. Lisa's knowledge and um, the information she shares with all of us is super, super important. And it's a really important episode. So enjoy. All right. Welcome. Now, we know navigating our child's educational plans and 504s can already be quite uh, cumbersome <laughs> and very overwhelming. And now we are also faced with the ever-changing landscape of education with teacher shortages and staff vacancies. And so today we're going to have one of our favorite special guests on with us to um, give us a dose of her experience and expertise in this arena of navigating these newer waters or newer horizons um, with our very exceptional kiddos here. So be be prepared to take notes or to re-listen to this episode as many times as you want. And we may be actually having just a little too much fun as well. I know it's not a fun conversation, but we're going to make it fun. We're still going to make this very fun and hopefully you feel empowered walking away from it. So stick with us. When you become a mom, you never imagine your child getting an autism diagnosis. It feels like your dreams have shattered, like a framed photograph falling off your mantle, exploding into a thousand pieces. But instead of trying to glue those pieces back together, this community of moms is here to help you build a new dream, a better one. So join in the conversation as us moms talk autism. All right. Welcome back. Okay. So um, it's a small posse today. It's just Jean and Brittany with our lovely Lisa Baskin-Wright, our uh, favorite IEP coach who hopefully... Hopefully you all have been following um, her her platform and many of you I know have written in saying that you have reached out to her and are utilizing her as a resource. And now we're just going to give you another hundred reasons why you should use her um, or someone like her because she can at least also point you in the right directions. Um, and so that's what we're all here for is that we want this up this podcast and this community to be a source to be able to point you in those right directions, because we know that we are blindly walking this path. Um, And some of us are more well-seasoned than others. Okay. So (laughs) we're here to share our 
our our level of expertise here. So without further ado, Lisa, please reintroduce yourself to our community here. Well, good morning, and thank you again so much for having me. It's it's lovely to be back with you. Even though we are a small group today, we are small but mighty. Um, yeah, so my name is Lisa Wright. I am a parent of an almost 17-year-old autistic girl, and I am a former high school math teacher, and I've been a mentor for gen ed teachers um, for many, many years, and for the last year or so, I stepped into the arena of advocacy, and so I am an IEP coach, and I support families all over the country in engaging in this process with their school district, and, you know, my main hope is to reduce that pain point for families, um, to help families feel more confident in the IEP process, um, to feel like they're being heard, to feel like they have tools to navigate the no's and, and move towards the yeses. Yeah. Um, and you do so, so well, at least it's helped even me, someone who is, um, can be, has been quite jaded by this process and my own experiences. Um, you know, of, of moving forward and through some, some rough patches that we had. And even yourself, you've walked through things turning very ugly for, you know, uh, your daughter's situation. Um, so we are living in an era of what has been coined the great resignation and, uh, what that has shown up or equated to us and our families of, you know, any child with any disability is, is, uh, why there are teacher vacancies in, in general education. It is even compounded the specialized areas even more. So there's not enough special educators now out there. Um, there's not, there's one, not a lot coming up in the pipeline. We have one We've one of the universities was able to report one person in our region in region 13, which I believe is like four comprised of 40 school districts in the state of Texas. One of them has one graduate specialized or that will be graduating with, you know, special ed certification. Um, so that's fun. You know, so there's not much coming in the pipeline. And then you had a mass exodus. And so you've, it's kind of like a lot of what's out there still is just a lot of swapping around from district to district. Now we have that lovely thing called the IDA, you know, that's supposed to, you know, ensure that our kids are supported the way that they need. Um, And then we have all of these rights of due process as parents um, that can ensure getting our children the supports that they need. And where prior to the pandemic and this prior to this mass exodus, we were in a position, we were in a better position to leverage those situations and those, and those laws. And now we find ourselves in a new set of circumstances and why those laws are still very um, legitimate and, and, they still exist and are supposed to be carried through. The reality is, is that there's not enough bodies. So how is it, how is it that we're able to reimagine and rethink 
our positions with coordinating with our teams, like really sizing up how you have to, I guess, recalibrate and pivot your thinking around what it is you can actually ask for and what you're going to receive on the end and and how are we still going to ensure an outcome and why that seems like bismal, like the, 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 the probability of that seems bismal. I, I believe from this conversation, you will leave with, um, ways that you can empower your kids, teams, and even yourself to kind of rethink how it is we could, your child could be supported and what that looks like. So, um, I mean, that's, that's my welcoming mat to this conversation. Um, with that being said, so, you know, I think in the beginning of this pandemic, well, actually the beginning of this school year, I remember on your platform, Lisa, you had did a reel or a couple of reels actually kind of pertaining to this very topic. And it was basically saying that the, the teacher vacancy is not an excuse for not meeting our kids' needs. Right. And it's, trying to think of innovative and creative ways of how we're going to be able to do that. So, you know, now that we're almost, we're at least through some of us, depending on when school year started, we're either a quarter of the way through or a third of the way through the school year. And some of the interactions that you've had with some of these teams, um, different various IEP or ARD committees, um, and, like kind of what your takeaways have been and what those conversations could look like or what you've proposed. So that way, you know, and even myself included, because I've been mentoring a few families and just being a trustee and being in education, I can contribute to that as well as Brittany, her district was faced with the very same circumstances and how that has shaped um, how, one of her children's classrooms has, has been designed. It seems to have, she has a positive story to share. So I like to plug that that positive story is coming down the pipeline. So for anyone that feels like very, you know, disenchanted or disheartened by, you know, oh, yeah. oh, this feels I'll, like. I'll be the Pollyanna of this episode. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. Okay. Ah. <laughs> Pollyanna coming in hot. That's right. Okay. So, all right. So Lisa, so go ahead. Like, I guess, you know, wherever you want to start in that, your, that part, you know, of this story. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I'll probably enter the space similar to Brittany um, in that I, I do think that, um, I like to look at things through that positive lens and, and not to, you know, not toxic, positive vibes type stuff, but just like in this really constructive, proactive, like, okay, these are the circumstances. So what are some actionable steps we can take? And so you touched on something that, um, I actually was speaking with a a family I'm working with yesterday that a lot of people when they reach out to me are kind of at that crisis point, right? Like something's going astray, something, uh, the child's needs aren't being met or they, you know, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do, right? They're in that space. And sometimes that fear and that upset along with that is anger. 
And so there's this drive. I do have a lot of people coming to me like, do I need a lawyer? Should I sue? I need to file a complaint, you know? And, you know, as somebody, like you said, I didn't have the easiest path with my daughter and it did end up with an attorney and all the litigious nonsense that, that can happen. And for me, even outside of the, the current circumstances of staff shortages and, and so on, the hardest part for me to sort of wrap my mind around with taking that due process sort of complaint route is that it actually steers us away from the child. And as parents, the sense of urgency that we have is my child's needs aren't being met right now. And so we want that to happen really quickly. And the legal process actually slows that stuff way down and um, actually kind of takes our eye off the most important ball, so to speak, which is the child. And it, it sort of ends up in this arena of like adults behaving badly. <laughs> um, and so, you know. It might sound a little hokey, but I really feel like it's always important, but but wildly more important in this moment to recognize the humanity around the table, right? The teachers, the staff, the therapists, the admins that are still there, that are showing up, they are trying to play whack-a-mole. Like they are trying to plug the holes as fast as they're developing. They can't keep up with it. So if you show up in that space sort of in recognition of, I know you guys are in it. I really appreciate you being here. Let's put our heads together and see what we can come up with together. You're going to be met with a sigh of relief and like, okay, I can do this. We can do this, right? So you're going to be in a space where everybody's going to be more ready and willing to dive in with you versus you walk in like, why aren't you doing this? And I don't care that there's no teacher. I need to file a complaint. You're not in compliance. Like that, that space is never going to get you where you want to be, especially now. So I definitely think that, um, I always say communication is key. And I think I was just on a different podcast recording last week where you know, for here's an example. I have a family I'm working with, with a non-speaking child, minimally speaking child that has a fairly robust AAC system. They use Proloquo to go and the child is learning how to use it. But the speech pathologist at the school is not trained in Proloquo to go and they're much more used to PECs and that's their comfort zone. And so they want to take away the robust system and they want to shift it to what you know, they are comfortable with. And of course, mom's like, you cannot take away my child's voice. That's not okay. And so I'm sure there was some heat in how they requested an IEP meeting. This was prior to us knowing one another. They had come to me after they'd requested the meeting. But in our conversation, I said, my, my suspicion is that speech pathologist is nervous and worried about going to that meeting because they think that like you are going to show an anger. And so I think it's really important to set the tone of here's my boundary. I know that we can come up with a creative solution for my son's communication system. I cannot agree to anything that takes away his voice, but I'm super excited to come to the table and collaborate on ways 
to maintain his system, help you feel comfortable delivering that system. Let's come together. And I didn't go to that particular meeting, but parent reported back after the fact. It was a long meeting. It was like two and a half hours, but they did come up with a solution. She does feel good about it. I think the speech path feels good about it. So I think some of it is front loading that communication of, I recognize what's happening. Here are the things I'm hoping that can happen. And then let's come together. I do think that this is a moment where we have to kind of lean into common sense um, I don't always think more is more yeah. or more is better, I guess is the better I way to put I completely that. agree with you, Lisa. And I feel like that's really, really important to, I mean, you can say it however you want to say it, start off with good vibes or whatever, but being very direct and, and reminding everyone that the staff should be doing this too, but you as a parent can remind everyone, look, we are team, you know, Johnny or whatever your kid's name is. Like we are all on the same team here. We are trying to come up with solutions together. So let's keep that framework in mind during the whole discussion of whatever it is, whether it's a behavior or a program that we need to, you know, modify or whatever and, and keep the child in mind. And I've heard of people like bringing a picture of their child and putting it on the table you know, or something like that. And just keeping that in the forefront of everyone's, um, you know, conscious as they're talking about all these things. So yeah, super important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I've heard that too. I've yeah. done that. I've brought pictures of my daughter, especially when she was younger and we were dealing with kind of district level folks that yes. didn't know her. Um, I don't know that it's as important when you are dealing with your school team and they sure. have a relationship sure. with your child. But what I do think is really important, and this is something I do with parent input statements, is I always start with who the child is, which is, I mean, parent input statements for me have kind of evolved over the last year as I've learned more and more and kind of gotten better in my own practice. But I always start a parent input statement with a full capture of like, who is Julia? Right? Like, what does Julia like? how does she learn? Is she a visual learner? Is she a kinesthetic learner? And sort of frame that before kind of diving into what those kind of concern areas are, because I don't want the IEP team, you know, the language in the IDA is a bit antiquated and, and ableist and IEPs, you know, I can't stand this word, but they tend to be deficits driven, right? So there's this focus on like, you know, what can't your child do or what is hard for your child to do? And we forget that it's a whole person. And so I want that reminder almost more than the picture. I want the reminder to be like, you know, Julia does not advocate for herself yet. Yeah. That person, Julia, you know, loves to run fast, loves to, you know, script Harry Potter, you know, can box better than Rocky and loves to help me cook. Right. Like I want them to know that like Julia is more than someone who doesn't yet have the skill to be able to advocate for herself. Right. Like see that. So important. Um, so important. But when we think about you know, autistic kids, and, and I'm painting with a, with a broad stroke here, kind of a common um, challenge point is transitions. Huge. 
It's, it's really common for autistic kids to struggle to kind of go from thing to thing, like to move from thing to thing, right? So when a child, let's say we're working on those communication skills, right? And the parent walks in and is like, well, they are supposed to get, you know, three 30-minute sessions of speech per week. But that speech path is stretched super, super thin, and they don't really have time for that. Well, can we do two 45-minute sessions? It's less transitions for the child. It's technically a little less time, not much, but a little bit, or no, it's the same. Can I add? It's, it's the, the same. same. Come on, yeah. Come brain. on math teacher. Brain not working. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to put the IEP goal in, a measurable goal that Lisa uh, works on some maintenance. Yes. Lisa's going to learn yes. her math facts. See, this is why we use tools. Lisa needs a calculator. She's talking off the cuff about a calculator. <laughs> there you go. No, but <laughs> It's the same time, but it's less transition, right? That's, um, that's so, and I clap. And so my dog. okay. No, but you're right. Like, that's the whole point. An, in, an IEP is an individualized education plan. I cannot emphasize that worth, word enough. Now, if you go into an IEP or, yeah, and you said, well, th- we're supposed to do three sessions of 30 minutes or whatever it is, you know, uh, a week or a month. No, well, who, who says we're supposed to do that? You can do whatever you want. You literally can. It's individualized. So if 245 minutes eases not only if it's that's not only better for your child for the transitions, but it helps your speech person because they don't have to schedule as many sessions, win-win, you know, make it work for you and the team. Right. right. Absolutely. That's one thing. The other thing is, cannot tell you how many IEPs I'm in the process of reviewing one right now that's so meaty because it has 15 goals. That's too many goals. (laughs) It's just way too many goals. And so it's, again, this sort of concept of like more isn't better. So we can choose like that's why present levels matter. Like the IEP process is sort of set out as this you know, kind of yellow brick road to follow. Right. And so we start with this capture of who this child is. We start with strengths and concerns, which moves us into those present levels. Like where is this child in this moment, sort of across all of these domains. And then that leads us to, okay, so where do we want to focus our energy? And that leads to goals. We do not need like I'm looking at my other screen because I have it up from this child, we do not need six separate speech language goals. Pick two. Well, and we do not need four gross motor goals. And and it's not only are you spreading yourself so thin on just that one area, gross motor or speech or whatever it is, you're not going to get quality data and you're not going to get quality interaction or, um, you know, not compliance, but like, participation with your child, you know, you're not going to get that. Right. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And the thing is, and I think people don't know this or they have nerves around this because maybe they don't trust or, you know, they're apprehensive. They don't understand, which is totally fine. The IEP is the bare minimum a team has Mm -hmm. to do. So just because something's not in the IEP does not mean that the team isn't going to work on it. It's just what's in the IEP is what they are going to track and collect data on. 
And so if we say, okay, you guys are short staffed or you're covering because you don't have, you know, let's say you don't have a speech path on staff, right? So they're either scrambling or they're spreading it thin. The OT, the special education teacher, somebody else is trying to collect that data, whatever it may be. Maybe they're trying to contract with somebody virtually and some kids can engage in a virtual speech session and others that's really like not the best modality for them. So then how do we get creative in that moment? So then do the services kind of shift from direct speech for that child to consult behind the scene where the contracted speech pathologist, the virtual person that's, you know, maybe even out of state, who knows, um, I guess it would need to be in state, but like, say you're in Southern California and the speech path is in Northern California. Well, maybe they do consult direct to the, you know, the special education teacher and the occupational therapist. And those people help track those goals or they implement some of the strategies so that the child is still getting that support in their communication development. It's just not direct. Right. It's, um, it's another indirect method because I even know a- Rory's. Rory's IEP speech goals are split between, you know, however, so many minutes um, of direct speech time. And then he has so many minutes of indirect speech time. So a month. So it, um, it, that's how it's how it pans out and it's worked very, very well. Um, But yeah, I totally agree with, I concur with all of that. It's, it's just kind of scaling. It's, it's just like, how do you scale it back? How do you scale the bigger picture to simplify it a little bit? Um, and sometimes when you're able to just isolate and focus on a smaller window of things, you will then have better results and then you can then move forward and then create those, those newer goals. I think it's, I think it's this based out of now, I guess I like to talk about where those feelings come out of, you know, based out of fear, based out of anxiety. If we don't have it in writing, then it's not going to happen. And those are all kinds of reinforcers that many, anybody, any advisor, you know, even coaches like IEP coaches or advocates has been, you know, that's, that's the constant reinforcer. So I think that's kind of where some of that, that drive has been. And I remember Rory's initial, um, IEP and the, um, the first year he was in pre-K, um, inclusion was in there and it was here, it was called our Pegasus program. She was like, I really want to max out at five goals. I don't want to do any more than that. I just want to, and here's the thing. They only got through three goals. They didn't even get to the other two goals. And that was very alarming to me Um, as I didn't, there was just literally no data on it at all and no attempt um, to, to get that data. And so we basically had to kind of fold it into the next IEP. And one of the things I wanted to mention too, when we've been um, was that with the litigious route or even let's say, you do any kind of grievance, if you declare that, okay, well, my child's IEP goals, two of them weren't, that's just two of them weren't meant, 
this year and they offer you compensatory services, there is no set deadline or timeline on those compensatory services. So you're still in the same place of not getting your child's needs met. So it's not, it's not adequate. And I think a lot of us, a lot of parents don't know that until they're in that position. Um, you're just kind of waiting for all the stars to align exactly where they need to. And then in the meantime, our kids are adrift and we're in this very long wall of services needed to be provided. So yeah, um, even if the circumstances aren't perfect, you can still make progress. There's still things that you can do if the staffing isn't what it should be because of whatever reason. There's still things that we can do, you know, we just have to keep moving forward and do our best and work with your team. Right. Absolutely. And one thing that, that people aren't necessarily aware of is that training for staff can be written into your. So important. Yeah. Yes. Um, And there are some really, really remarkable resources out there. Um, There are people that, we'll do trainings virtually. There are, you know, there are, there are possibilities available. One of my favorite um, resources is Alexandria Zakos, who runs the Meaningful Speech um, page on Instagram, but like that's her organization. She um, has several courses available, both for parents and for providers on Gestalt language processing, which most autistic people are Gestalt language processors. And yet most IEP teams are less familiar with Gestalt and they don't really have the training. And so a lot of the approaches in supporting language development and communication communication development in our autistic learners is really designed more for an analytic language mm-hmm. processor at the like learn a word then learn another word let's string it all together let's work on pronouns let's answer wh questions those kinds of things which our gestalt processors are more scripters yeah. and like you know they need a different approach and you know alexandria has like a free youtube channel so and once Lisa, a month, I was just she- going to ask really quick. Oh, go ahead. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Can you tell us where people could find out a little bit more about Gestalt? I know we're going to have future episodes on that, but if no one's ever heard that term before, um, what is her handle? And we'll sure. make sure people know. Yeah. So her handle is at Meaningful okay. Speech. Um, and just a quick, I had really, the only time I ever heard the word Gestalt was when my daughter was being diagnosed okay. as autistic. And that was... Well, she's almost 17 and she was eight and a half. And since I already flubbed a math problem, I'm not even going to (laughs) try. It was a little over eight years ago. Um, And the neuropsychologist that did her evaluation said she's a a gestalt processor. And she tried to explain it, but we we were getting so many things at that moment that it like kind of went in one ear and out the other. I was like, sweet, cool. I'm like, let's move on. She's autistic. Okay, well, how does that look for her? And and what are our next steps? and it wasn't until I really became more active, like on my own Instagram page, um, and started connecting with Alexandria and Katia Piscatelli, whose handle is um, at Boho Speechy, um, that I it was like, wait a second, I'm pretty sure, you know, Dr. Greenberg said something about Julia being Gestalt, and like, and then it was like, oh my goodness, she is. So basically, there are two ways to develop language. 
There is an analytic language processor, which all of us probably were, where we learned a word, then we learned another word. And then at some point we started stringing words together and that moved us towards spontaneous language, spontaneous speech. Gestalt language processors typically learn things in chunks. And so they'll, you know, sort of memorize movie lines or TV shows or jingles, or um, it can be single words. It can be as long as an entire movie, literally. Um, And, you know, we sort of think of it as delayed echolalia or scripting. And oftentimes in schools, it's like, well, we've got to get rid of that echolalia or that scripting because it's quote unquote, not functional communication, except it is because those scripts all have meaning and they're usually rooted in some sort of emotion. And so there's, it's called the natural, the stages of natural language acquisition. There's four stages. I am not even close to an expert on this. Katya and Alexandria are definitely your go-to people. Um, But often when I talk to families about this, they're like, oh my gosh, that's my child. Because it's so common within the autistic, you know, learning profile, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just Mm -hmm. a common thing, but we didn't know the name of it. And I was right there with you. I didn't know the name Mm -hmm. of it either. Um, And so it's just a different way of approaching um, helping develop that communication. So yeah, she's she's a phenomenal resource, but I often share her as a resource um, with IEP teams. Yeah. Because she's got free handouts. She's got this free YouTube channel. She has an international directory of speech pathologists that have gone through her certification program. And so you could look and see like, well, is there somebody local to me that could potentially come and do some professional development with our team, you know, an hour or two of just like, this is sort of a a basic overview, a district could hire one of her trained Mm -hmm. folks to come in, whether virtually or in person, if they're local, to provide that support for the team so that the team is then more empowered to work with their student population. And so if we were if we're in a position where we're either reducing or shifting the amount of time they're working with our students, that time is more valuable. It's more directed. It's more in alignment with how that child learns. And that's a, that's a way to, that's a creative solution mm-hmm. as well. Right. It may cost the district a little bit of money, but like in the long run, it's been, yeah. it's really beneficial. For right. Everybody. And I've made, and I can't tell you, I think every single consult I've had with every family the past month is always said, I've always reinforced that. Don't forget you can have, training specified in your child's IEP. Um, because one of the things, and I, I don't know if you're ready to take it here yet, but I'm going to kind of go there is that, you know, so here we're, we're thinking about being outside of the box and kind of reimagining what our kids' educational plans can look like in the face of, you know, a vacancy or an absence or, you know, just not accept, you know, something that's not directly accessible. How do you then create that accessibility? But some of the things that trying to get people in the framework and understanding is basically how the system is set up um, and where to start looking for, you've come almost identifying where the gaps are in the system. So you can then as a parent 
think, okay, well, you don't have this or this is this is that. So now I can suggest this, which is it's what is the policy? What is the state? Well, you can look at federal if you want, because it's always good to start there. What's your federal? What is your state policy? What are your state mandates? What is your local policy in your district and campus? So you can evaluate your handbook if there's anything pertinent to that, especially around behaviors or anything. But really, you're going to look at what your local policies are. And then what are the practices? Are they even following what is the current policy or state mandate? And if there's not a local pot, like it's kind of looking at those things. What is missing? Because not a single one of our districts or states mirror another. So you, me, any of us girls here on the podcast, we can't give direct advice to someone and say, well, this is how you do that. Because you can't do that without sizing up from that lens, from the breaking that down and then therefore then approaching it from that angle. So yeah. do you want to take that away? <laughs> sure. So um, I think you and I, when we were chatting about this earlier, this sort of came out of a conversation that I had at a master IEP coach conference this last summer in Milwaukee and Catherine Witcher, the founder of master IEP coach mentorship program, very first question she threw out to us. And and I, the master IEP coach community is parents, teachers, therapists, and admins. It's, it's anyone that sits at an IEP table that has chosen to go through this training and be a part of this ongoing community. So when you're sitting at a table, you are sitting essentially at an IEP table because you've got representatives from all around that table sitting there. And the very first question she asked was, what's the difference between a law, a policy, and a habit? Oh, yeah. Right. A lot of times the nose and the we don't do that here is actually a habit. And so, yes, you do have to kind of educate yourself and that can be through inquiry, right? Like you can say at an IEP table, and I really do like to steer away from like the snarky ask and really more ask out of curiosity because <laughs> I really don't want to be putting anybody back mm -hmm. on their heels. I get it. I get the angst and the anger. I lived it for a long, long time, but I still think the like, huh, that doesn't, I don't know if I understand that. Can I see the policy? Right. Where does where does it say that? I want to be able to wrap my head around yeah. that a little bit more, right? Yeah. Like you're still asking the same question and there's a really high likelihood that no policy exists. Yeah. But it is a great way to get around a no, right? Like, or if you hear a no, if you hear a like, oh, we don't do that here, then you can take one step back and be like, okay, well then can we all agree that Julia is having like a tough time you know, being able to stay in the classroom. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, this solution A that we just put out, that's not a viable option. So can we brainstorm what might some other options be? You know, what else could we possibly do to meet this need so that Julia is able to stay in the space? Like, is it a sensory issue? Is she overwhelmed? Can we, can we get her some sensory tools that, you know, she has access to and, you know, she can use to be able to stay in the space? Can we put together some sort of break schedule for her and she knows where the safe space is in the classroom that she gets to go to? Like, what can we do if she is not allowed 
to leave the classroom to go get what she needs, or we don't have the staff to take her to go do the thing that she needs to be able to do. So then what accommodation, what tool can we put in place? How can we figure this out together so that Julia is not floundering? Yeah. That's what it's all about, right? That's the point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the point. And I, you know, one thing I think, you know, I, I hear this a lot is my kid needs a one-on-one. They have to have a one-on-one. And that is a really nuanced mm-hmm. conversation. There are students who need that one-to-one support throughout their day. There's a safety issue. There's a medical reason, a combination of both, um, where they really need that direct support throughout the day. They don't yet have the skills to be able to navigate throughout the day. There are other students where we would like it. We're worried. I mean, I know for me, Julia could not ask for help to save her life. She would just sit in silence and suffer. And so Aaron and I felt very, very strongly, like how in the world is this little peanut supposed to navigate school? Like she could be on fire and she would not ask somebody to help her. Um, but truly there were moments in her educational life where she really did need that one-on-one throughout her day, but there were times that she didn't. And now she doesn't at all. Now she's in a mainstream program and and she doesn't need that one-on-one at all. And I think I talked about this. I went live and talked about this. So if anybody really wants to bore themselves for 10 minutes, they can go back and watch that live. But, um, you know, she, she was at a certain point in her development and her school readiness and her emotional state and all the things um, she had a one-on-one second through fourth. Um, but that fourth grade year, things really, really unraveled. And she was with that person outside of the classroom, either alone in a room or on the like backfield, um, the entire mm. day. She did not enter a classroom basically at all and could not and needed breaks throughout the day and like the whole nine yards. Um, And so, but we want to think like there was, I think I maybe even told this story last time I was on. So stop me if I did, but, you know, I worked with teachers for a long time and there was a kindergarten student last year that entered a classroom. Like they moved into the district like mid-year. And of course the teacher didn't find out till the morning he was coming that he was autistic and not on IEP. Are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, if you think the communication is happening behind the scenes, it isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. right. And so this sweet little bug shows up. Oh my God, you know, this big little kindergarten kid. And um, he was a math like guru. He would not have made the mistake I made, right? Like this kid was remarkable mathematically, loved math, felt comfortable with number, was scripting number nonstop. Like that was his calming strategy. That was his love. That was his passion. Words, letters, reading, writing. No, thank you, ma'am. So during those moments, during those learning moments in the classroom, there were things, you know, that were supposed to be on the ground that were in the air, right? Including his body. Like he just <laughs> could not tolerate and all the things that were happening, right? This sweet little guy. Picturing so, him flying around the room. Yeah. <laughs> right. He was. There was like a spinning chair. And it's like, there goes, right? You know, such a sweetie. He needed one-on-one help during those times math he's like dude i got it i'm right as rain right so we want to be thinking about does my kid really need this all day every day 
are there different accommodations or supports that could happen? I have a, stu uh, a student, it's not my student, I have a family I'm working with right now with a middle school student um, who is really not like his learning needs in math are not being met. So he's in like the regular eighth grade math class. And then there's like a supplemental eighth grade math class and he's in both and he's still struggling and not passing. And he does have resource time. So we had an IEP meeting I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was. And I, I asked, I said, can we get a clearer picture of like, what does math class look like? Yeah, both of them. That's a good, yeah. Starting point. And so you know, they, they kind of started to explain. And at some point it came up that there was an aid from resource that was in the room to support students during the eighth grade, like the gen ed math class. I said, Oh, well, is that person there specifically to support this student or are they there to support like the whole class or just the students that are on IEPs that are in that class? And she said, Oh, you know, they're there for the students on IEPs, not just this one particular child. And I said, great. How often does this child use that resource? And she said he feels more comfortable either coming to me when he's in resource room or going to the gen ed teacher who isn't always available. I said, oh, so this kid is highly relational, right? Like he only goes to people to ask the questions he feels safe with. How very yes, human, right? Him, right? <laughs> so I said, oh, well, is the person that's with him in the math class, is she also in the resource room when he's in the resource room? And she said, no. And I said, well, is it possible that maybe her schedule could be shifted so that she can start supporting him in the resource room and start building that relationship with him so that when she's with him in the mainstream math class, he is able to use that resource and get the help he needs in that space because hopefully he'll feel more comfortable. And she was like, Oh my God, I didn't, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to change her schedule today. Light like bulb. I didn't yeah. even think about that. What a good idea. Like, yeah. you know, light bulb. And I thought, you know, we do, even amidst the shortage, we do have some resources available. Catherine actually told a story at office hours the other day, and I really thought this was creative. In addition to staff resources, we have space. Yes. Good point. Right. We don't have a whole lot of extra space. And I'm seeing this come up with a number of families I work with as well. And so Catherine was saying this came up for her when she was doing more direct work with families. She now does things more broadly, but um, she asked to see the supply closet. She's like, most schools have a supply closet with a bunch of stuff in there that like no one's yeah. using. And so she went into the supply closet and there was a bunch of boxes that no one was using. And so she was like, well, I let's take those. And she literally built like partitions for the classroom to create these like smaller workspaces within the classroom. And the kids decorated it so that like it, they, it was their space because it was cardboard, they could color whatever they wanted. And so it became a way to sort of divide up the room and use the room differently to create that space they needed to do the one-on-one -on -one instruction or the, you know, yeah. I need the less distraction. Can I go into this quiet space and do the work? And it was a way to use something that literally like a cardboard box that was sitting in some storage closet that nobody even knew, like it wasn't on anybody's mind to think right. to do that. 
So I do think that there are ways, because she was saying, and I've seen this in Oakland a lot, where they use the hallway. Yes. My kids get pulled out in the hallway, which is not ideal, right? It makes a a child feel like they're being a bit segregated. But if we can create a space within the room, especially if they can put their own sort of personal touch on it and be part of sort of building the space, um, that can be a solution. I think all of this is like so fascinating and such a good point because such a good point because having multiple people at an IEP table, parents, staff, teachers, aides, everybody, you know, principal, district, and then and then someone like Lisa, an IEP coach, or um, that they all that all those brains and all those eyes they can come up with different solutions. You know, your, your mentor being able to think outside the literal box and find something, you know, find her own boxes to use. I mean, would a teacher been able to do that? I mean, who knows, but just having someone fresh in there to look at a situation or look at a, um, you know, a problem like this, it can really, you just, you never know. We can be very creative if, if given the opportunity and if, if other people can maybe take a look at it from a different angle. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So I am dying to hear the success story that you have to share. I'm, I'm curious. About, to hear yeah. About so, well, I mean, we've had a few over the years. Um, I'm not sure which one Jean wants me to highlight in particular, but I can tell oh, one. I'll, and, ta- I'll tell you. Oh, tell me, tell me. The one that I want is that because there's this whole um, fear, you know, with, collapsing classroom and increased classroom sizes. Um, and I believe that the situation that you walked into this school year with Ruby and what you got to experience and see is that while that may have happened, they then also had access to a room that was going to be completely vacant that could be used for sensory. But obviously the way that you tell it is much more impactful than my quick little summary of it. Um, But just even like how that's kind of benefited Ruby. um. Yeah. So um, just like I'm sure many schools out there throughout the country and the world, every year teachers get shuffled around to different classrooms. Like it's just, you know, different number of of students enrolled. There's a new housing development down the street. All of a sudden we have this influx of, you know, 70 new kids or whatever it is. And so there's always shuffling. And although Ruby's teacher and Ruby got to stay at the same school this last year, they moved the teacher to a different classroom. And, you know, that can be, even though it was still on the same campus, it can be hard. Um, I don't know any child who's, you know, autistic, who doesn't struggle with transitions at on some level or a new environment. It's just, that's part of the deal. And so, you know, we're all, not only was the teacher concerned for Ruby, but for her entire class and being able to get them comfortable and set up in this new place, but it has worked out for the best. And I really do feel like it's a combination of the school staff, the principal and others who are in charge of the, you know, the logistics of running the school um, and the teacher herself. And they were able to find a classroom for um, what we call them here in Northern California is an SDC class, a special day class. Um, And they found a a classroom for the SDC kids 
that had an adjoining interior door that connected to another empty classroom. They just happened to have one available this year. And that teacher was given permission to create a sensory room for those kids. And she set it up. Um, I, I'm sure she used some resources that were on campus, but she also, I'm I'm positive that she spent some of her own money and pulled together and was able to create a, a quiet space with reading nooks and sense other sensory tools in the space. And if those kids need a break for any reason, they are able to use that space. And that's a perfect example of not having to use the hallway or some picnic bench or park bench out on the, the school playground to use if a child does need that one-on-one time away with less distraction, you know, with from from a, like a regular typical classroom of 25 kids or whatever, they can use that space as well. And another really, really great thing for Ruby, because she really struggles with transitions, we're having Ruby go, um, she spends part of her day in a general education classroom, a typical classroom, and then she spends part of her day in the SDC class. So she goes back and forth. And that's really, really hard for any child, I would think, um, much less one who has who has special needs. So she, um, the way that they have it set up is this SDC class is directly across the hall from her gen ed class. So the transitions and the, um, the amount of time is significantly less from having to go from classroom to classroom. There's less distractions. There's less anxiety about having to, you know, she can visually see the door from her own desk in, in one classroom to the other. So just all of those little things can really add up and make such a positive difference to a kid's day and the flow, you know, the trans that transitional flow between activities. So, yeah. No, absolutely. And you just touched on something that made me think, because I've had this conversation, actually I had it multiple times yesterday with, with several different families, this idea of routine and needing the routine and the safe predictability of routine and sort of even taking that idea and stepping it up a notch, including the child in determining what that routine might look like if they're able to contribute to that. Um, I know that there can sometimes be resistance, like the child's trying to control you or, you know, we need to get them to be more flexible or whatever, but truly, like I said, this is so bad, but I did say this to a parent yesterday. I was like, tell me you shower differently every day. (laughs) Right. Right. You get in the shower and you do the same thing every time. And maybe you shave your legs one day, but you don't. Pretty much. But like, there is a rhyme and reason to how you shower. Tell me otherwise, right? Like we are all creatures of habit. And then some of us really need that routine to feel safe differently than others, right? So, and that doesn't cost anything. We can create a, a, a clean, clear start to the day that is the same every day. And that kid can then enter the space really differently than if we don't spend those 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it may be, right? And then if we're still thinking about that on the scope of their whole day, even better. But like, if we can control the controllables and start with the beginning of the day, we are going to set that kid up for success so much better than if we don't. And that doesn't cost anything. And that doesn't necessarily take a whole bunch of resources it, you know, maybe somebody needs to make a visual, Yeah. you know, okay. So somebody spends 20 minutes making a visual and then we have it. 
right? Like, um, but there, there just are ways to think about like, who is my child? What is their temperament? What are the hard times of the day for them? What are, what are the things that help them feel more comfortable? And how can we go from there? Like, there's all kinds of layers to what we're looking at, right? Like, you know, and 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 meeting those sort of foundational human needs should absolutely and that's what an IEP can be used to brainstorm those kinds of things. It doesn't have to be just okay, we're going down this list. Let's talk about the goals and da 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 da. Like you can sit there and you can have a little brainstorm session and talk about logistical things like that. Transitions, you know, setting up which direction is should their desk be? Like all sorts of things like that. Okay. Absolutely. Right. And it's set into the IEP process because it all falls under right. accommodations. Yes. So um, a couple of things I wanted to highlight um, in this conversation that we're talking about. Uh, so picking up from there. So so the reason why that even though people don't know to utilize that in the IEP is just that that has not become part of standardized practice. And some like in our district or our, in our state, they can pay the state or the campus can pay for a facilitator to facilitate those meetings. So they're, they're doing that and they're running the show. So it's not necessarily you, the parent, you know, stewarding or shepherding that, that conversation. So a lot of times parents don't think to speak up to input those types of things because they're just kind of being led around by the person running the IEP meeting. And in that case, if it's not a facilitator, usually the assistant principal, um, is the appointed person in that case kind of, you know, be the head administrator on the, on the group uh, leading the conversation. But, um, in Texas, we have a thing called the autism supplement and that is where you get into the, the basic needs and nuance from kind of a minute to minute, um, throughout the day. And it has, it goes, I think it has like 19, parts and where it questions it. And, uh, that's one thing that when done right is a very positive thing, um, in our state, cause our state is just not really great for disabilities in general. Um, but we do have an autism supplement and that was imparted legislatively, uh, during a legislative session by parents who went and advocated for this to happen and lawmakers passed it and approved it thing is, is that not all districts, school districts or campus staff and administration really know how to exercise or utilize uh, autism supplement properly. But when used properly, it is a amazing piece. Um, when you don't have one, like Lisa said, you pump it into the accommodations piece as much as possible. And that with that parent input statement, you also have an opportunity to kind of, after you get your IEP, you can look at the deliberations, if you feel like something was missing, or even if you don't want to wait till the deliberations and you didn't, you can, you can submit a piece of documentation that you want to make sure that is considered when people go back to review the IEP. Like that was your different, it's almost a different form of parent input. Um, But you can do those things and exercise that. I think, so that brings me to the one piece that I was trying to like because I've been talking with a lot of families who are new to this. They have three, four, five-year-olds. And a lot of them are hesitant to even mainstream their kids because of this whole process is overwhelming and they don't feel like 
the school was going to be able to meet their kids' needs or understand them. Um, we have the privilege and benefit now that we're, again, have being a little more seasoned in this process that we can kind of, we have a level of confidence now that we did not have when we're starting out. And so, and I know you, Lisa, do a lot of coaching in that aspect um, of just like, okay, well, if you're just starting out, here are the top five things that you can do um, to get started. And it is kind of, it is baby stepping it. But I think when you're in that room, there's sometimes, and I, even myself, someone who is strong, you know, strong personality. And I, you're like, you default to kind of what everyone else is kind of leading you around. So you're not really sure what it is you're supposed to be doing because you're like, okay, well, they say this is what he needs or this is the way they do something. You're the expert. So I don't really know. And I think that's where, and, and you also, I will say is that the, the parent new parent is in a state of trauma at that point, because all this is new. Right. And because they are, things are coming at them at a, from a deficit standpoint, because all the evaluations reflect what the child can't do. Um, you're just being bombarded with that. You're trying to process that. And the, and what actually, what I've learned about trauma recently is that when you're in that state of hyper arousal, there is a, there's an ability that you're not, you're able, you're kind of in a part of like not able to learn part of your executive functioning is shut down. And so I think that that is where a lot of fear and anxiety, um, comes in for, for parents. Um, so now not only here again, we are more seasoned, we've been walking what was the previous landscape to now the landscape is shifting again, and it's a whole nother set of skill sets to learn. Um, I think what I've, I think some of what I've done is obviously validated where they, what they've, what they're feeling, obviously normalized what they're feeling. I think that's something that, especially I do, I know we have a lot of educators that do listen to our podcast and I applaud y'all for that. And thank you so much for listening and tuning into those experiences. The missing piece for a lot of educators is that they don't really know that that's what's going on behind the scenes with the, with the parent. And so the way the information is being delivered at that time is not in a, you know, bite-sized comprehensible way. And then, then you have fight or flight that kicks in. And then that's when, sure. oh, well, when you're not doing this and then that's your, you, all you now know, you start to be accustomed with due process. So I think it's like this vicious cycle. So it's kind of like what I like to th- tell the parents is at least I, it's important to identify where you are at as a parent in this process. Where are you at emotionally and mentally? Because that it has to be a part of how this kind of comes together for you and how you're able to navigate this process and what decisions you're going to make about for your child. And that those educators kind of need to know that too. And they're not really considering that. It's just sort of like the wheels are turning, but not everybody's like, you know, pedaling the bike at the same pace here. You know, it's just 
there's things outpacing one another here. Right. And that's something that you can, right. as a parent, you can bring up. You you need to maybe reflect on it before you get to the IEP and then maybe come to the table and explain whether it's a family situation or, you know, we, we got a diagnosis six months ago and we are still wrapping our head around this and this and this. Like you can definitely talk about those things as well. That's such a good point. Um yeah, no, that's what yeah. I was thinking as you were talking. And the other thing, I mean, I would even take it up a step. I would communicate it in writing. Oh, that's a time. fabulous idea. Yeah. So I really like to have families reach out to a team before they meet. Um, sometimes, well, I always try to have it be to submit that parent input statement. And if, you know, there's any sort of proposed changes to goals or, you know, input mm-hmm. on that front. Um, I like to, to send that as well, but I really like the email to read a one of gratitude, right? Like, thank you for taking the time to meet with me on such Mm -hmm. and such date. Um, and then here are some things I'm hoping we can talk about. So it's almost like you're giving the agenda or at least giving input for the agenda, but it's also a beautiful opportunity to say, I just want to let the team know I'm feeling really overwhelmed by this process. I'm feeling confused by this process. I I want to be an equal participant in this yeah. process. Um, but I I don't, you know, I'm in uncharted right. waters for me, right? I'm in new right. territory. And so, you know, if if you guys could be so gracious as to sort of slow the process or down explain or explain a term use, to me or whatever. Yeah. Explain yeah. it, use layman's terms and, and um, avoid acronyms or whatever it may be. Like, I just think it's really nice and it humanizes yeah. you, right? Like as you're saying, right, we think we're seasoned because we've been sitting at an IEP table for a while. You know, the special education teacher that's been in education for 15 years, it's sat in on thousands of, you know, like they forget, sure. right? So they're just sort of going through the motions sure. of like present levels, da, 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 right? And they forget, oh goodness, this is a parent of a three-year-old. They have this is no elderly. idea what's going on. <laughs> and they've never sat at this table before and they're like trying not to cry. Right. Or and I will, right? I will say too, so, really quick, like whenever I have expressed those kinds of concerns or emailed the team ahead of time or any of those things that you just mentioned, I have never, ever once not received anything other than support and positive, um, like feedback and willingness to go, go down and talk about anything I've brought up. No problem at all. Of course. It's so been that, wonderful. Of course. But of that course. was and I, my I, experience. Well, so and that's not always the case. Things. Right. It's not always the case. Perpetuously. Yeah, I know. But I want, I also want to be realistic that that's not a hundred percent guarantee. Sure. 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 No, nothing is a hundred percent guarantee, right? Like nothing is binary. Right. Right. So, you know, I, I have yet to meet a teacher or educator or pediatric therapist that goes into that work because they're like, you know, it would be an amazing thing to do. Mess with kids' lives. I think I'm going to go get paid peanuts to go like stir the pot and, and make things and rough. Right? Get into like, arguments no with parents. That goes yeah. Into with that. Yeah. I want to argue with people. Like that is not what drives somebody to a classroom. Right. Right. Love of children, interest in how they learn, wanting to be part of that experience, love of the particular curriculum. You know, those are the things that drive us there. And they are navigating the same flawed, you know, underfunded system that we are, 
And so there's exhaustion that happens and we sort of move away from curiosity because curiosity is takes action. And so we move towards passivity and overwhelm and all the things that you were describing of like, we, when we're stressed and overwhelmed, our executive functioning capacity diminishes and our ability to self-regulate diminishes and our ability to learn is non-existent, right? That is true for staff. And it is particularly true Absolutely. for our children. So we like that is a little bit of a North Star moment, right? Like, how can we expect our kids to learn anything if they're dysregulated in a in a heightened stress response, right? Like that has yeah. to be what's sort of guiding our conversation of like we need to reduce those moments so that they can actually learn the skills. A very awesome teach. ABA term that I loved from one of our progressive BCBAs that we had that was kind of this like pivotal person and this like turning point in like Rory's development like after you know she was probably our fifth BCBA at that point but was HRE happy release and engaged you cannot teach a child that is not HRE you cannot therapize a child that is not HRE Nothing is going to happen unless you have HRE going on. And it is like, even again, as a lens now sitting on the dais, making decisions and why we're examining this fallout, you know, of now the repercussions of quote unquote rebounding back from the pandemic because <laughs> we're not we're not totally out of it. I don't you're, we're going to be seeing the repercussions of this for time to come, but I am seeing the huge mental health continuous, you know, breakdown and issues and concerns around this. And it's affecting the way that we're able to educate our kids and that those, our kids are not specifically our kids are far from unscathed from that. In fact, they're probably the highest part of the collateral damage. So we have an opportunity here from like this wonderful information that Lisa's really been able to give us insights to, which is kind of rethinking the way we're having these conversations. We can still, it really just goes back to it's, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's like, amen. you yep. can, you can still, there's a million different ways to slice a pie and this is no different. You know, we have to, it's just kind of, this is part of our resiliency coming through these experiences of living through a pandemic with, with our kids um, and getting the educational support that they need. So I am like, you gave, I hope I just, I can't wait for everyone to hear this because I am so excited for everyone being like, that was the best episode. It was so (laughs) meaty. I feel like I'm, I am way, I am, I'm more courageous and more brave to step into this arena now. And I feel like I have a little bit more tools in my tool belt to just even, cause that's part of it is they're like, I don't even know where to start. Well, and, and that, part of that's it is the that. key, right? Yeah, is is having all of those tools, or or continue. I'm I'm continually adding more tools to my tool belt, or changing what I need to do in the IEP. It's it's a learning process, even if you've been doing it for years. And and to Absolutely. to wrap it up, I guess is 
Lisa, how how can people learn more? How can they connect with you? How can they um, listen to your you know your reels and your advice and call you if they need to or contact you? Sure. So before yeah. I get to that, because I really want to say sort of a wrap Please. up, I say this to almost every family I work with. People get worried they're going to make the wrong decision. What do I do if I make the wrong decision? You can change your mind. You cannot say that enough. Yes. You can change your mind. You are going to do the best you can with the information that you have available. And if that decision turns out to not be the best decision, or you learn something later that you're like, oh gosh, I don't think this is working at all for my child or for me or for anybody, then you get to change your mind. And then my very last piece on that is as you're making like placement decisions or trying to make decisions, part of the way to get information is you should observe, you should observe the full continuum of placements. So what are the different kind of options that are being thrown out there as possibilities? Um, and in order for you to equally participate in that decision-making process, you, you have to be able to go observe. So, but I just want you, as we give ourselves grace because no one knows everything. I don't know everything. I'm still learning every day too. Um, you can change your mind. You can change the decision. Yeah. God, God love Julia. She's been in almost every different permutation of school possible with the exception of in residence. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you can make different decisions and it's okay. So that, that will be my parting warm fuzzy. And for anybody that wants to, you know, get a hold of me or, or work with me or watch me, make a fool of myself on Instagram. It brings Um, a smile to my face every time. I love it. (laughs) Um, My Instagram handle is at Lisa Baskin, right? With zero affiliation to Baskin Robbins, which is is very sad. sad, um, Because wouldn't it be amazing if I came with ice cream too? Like that'd be awesome. Um, And you know, anybody can DM me from there. There's a link to my very sad website that needs some help on there. Um, or somebody can email me, um, at Lisa at Lisa Baskin, right. Awesome. We will try our very, very best to put that in the show notes too. Sometimes we're really good about it. Sometimes sure. we're not, but we're going to do our best for you, Lisa. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, no, it's all good. And I do offer a free 30 minute consultation. Oh, awesome. Um, I don't, you know, have any anticipation that somebody will have to move forward working with me from that point. So, you know, there's some folks that get what they need from the 30 minutes and they're good as gold. And I'm like, woohoo, good for you. Let's do it. Right. There's other folks that send me the contract within 10 minutes. Um, (laughs) They're like, just help help me, please help me. I need you. (laughs) Right. Right. Wait, wait, wait. The timer went off. What? (laughs) Right. You know, um, I have folks that, you know, they feel like they, you know, they need to talk to their partner about it or they need to. <laughs> Lisa's um, dog is attacking her. <laughs> She's trying to finish talking, you guys. I just see paws in the air. Every time. <laughs> every, every time. I know. Well, they, they're, it's they're, hard they're to just be jealous talking. because my animals get to be the stars of the show as well on the podcast. <laughs> every time. I cannot have a conversation without Leo jumping on me. It's extremely professional. Um but yeah, no, I have folks that we have a great conversation and, you know, they, they follow up relatively immediately. I do think the fastest is 10 minutes. Um, and then I have others that, you know, a few months later, it's like, I don't know if you remember me, but yeah. do you have space in your schedule for me now? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm not going anywhere. 
not going anywhere. So, you know, my hope ultimately is that nobody would need me really. That's ideal. Sure. Right. Right. That's ideal. Like Aaron kids, like you shouldn't have a job. The system yeah. should just work. And I was like, well, thank <laughs> I know, I know. Right. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I want parents to feel empowered and to feel like they can make these choices and then they can reevaluate those choices and have the tools to be able to go back to the team and say, Hey, maybe we need to look at this a little bit differently or whatever. And I am completely thrilled and honored to be a part of that process with somebody. And I'm also really excited if somebody feels they've got the tools to That's do it. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. She's a great resource guys. Definitely look her up. Um, do we want to do some a peak of the week, Jean. Is that okay? Sure. Peak it. All right. We're going to peak it. Well, um, my peak of the week is I am sitting not in my own closet. I'm sitting in Shannon's closet, you guys, because <laughs> I'm visiting Shannon today and I'm so excited. I got to opportunity to come to Arizona for a quick minute and um, I got to... Um, hang out with Shannon for the day. And I got to hold Gracie's hand and play with her and uh, she's just the best. So um, Shannon actually was hoping to be on this um, episode with us, but she got called away with her real estate um, responsibilities. So um, it's me in Shannon's closet and I just, I feel her everywhere because I'm literally, you know, sitting next to her shoes. So it's great. It's great. <laughs> how about, how about Eugene? All right. So my peak is, is uh, so my son, um, has become quite the, uh, popular guy at his campus and he is known for randomly telling people to dance, he walks past a classroom, tells a teacher to dance, tells one of his aides to dance, um, talks about making his animals dance. It's just sort of this thing. So, um, one of the lunch monitors, who's also the EDP guy is like very involved and just you know, as, as like a support, uh, for the school, um, taught him, um, <laughs> everybody dance now. So he, um, he brought the mic over to Rory yesterday and like during lunch, she had the entire like cafeteria quiet and they got, Rory got the mic and he was like, everybody dance now and said it so clearly. And the entire cafeteria, all the kids got up. And we're dancing. That's it is awesome. like so awesome. He was like totally beside himself. I'm sure now he's going to want to do this on repeat every single yeah. day. But like, <laughs> every day. All, I watched, I watched awesome. every kid at the table. They were watching Rory. They were watching and waiting for what he had to say. And they all just know this. My favorite thing is because just when he did randomly start asking random teachers, <laughs> when he would walk by their classrooms, like, Mr. Bennett, dance. <laughs> like, they tell me these stories. And, he just, and then like the teacher just automatically, whatever he's doing, stops what he's doing and dances for Rory. It's Aww, like, it is cute. just the thing. That, yeah, it's Amazing. very, very cute. It's very, it's awesome. So <laughs> you got anything, Lisa? Oh my gosh, a mm -hmm. hot spot. Um, what's going on? Well, for me, um, my daughter went to a homecoming dance. No. She has never gone to anything oh, like that ever. Awesome. Um, and she's got this wonderful, for the first time, wonderful circle of neurodivergent, lovely friends. They're all wonderful. I, 
they're not all neurodivergent, but most. Um, one of their catchphrases is "neurotypical people suck," which is it's very funny. teenager thing um, to say. Yeah, yeah. You love it when our kids can turn say, into right? like the angsty neurodivergent kid. Love it. Right? <laughs> totally, it's hilarious. Um, and so, uh, yeah, she went to a friend's house. She wasn't comfortable getting ready there, which the others were doing, but her friend was like, fine. So she let me put a little lippy stick and a little mascara. And she looked beautiful. And they went into the gym with the dance for about three seconds, decided it was too loud and found another space and hung and had Perfect. a great time. And then this week is spirit week. So every day she's dressed in a different theme. And yesterday was my favorite. Um, her, they're juniors and they're junior jaws. And so she wore a shark outfit um like a like a sleep you know like one of those oh, like, yeah. jammy type things with a hood and she wore a lifeguard t-shirt and so she had it unzipped and kept going around saying i ate a lifeguard oh, that's <laughs> that's a good <laughs> halloween costume i know i was like sister you're yeah. set right like you've got to cover anyway it just it it cracked me up so it's nice to see her having such a fun, yeah, fun i love it thank awesome. you thank you for being here thank you for for sharing with us. And yeah, we're just, we, we hope to have you on again. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for having me. And I would love to be on anytime you want to have me. Sorry. Sorry, Tosh. Sorry, Shannon. You totally missed out. (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll get them on next time. (laughs) We'll get them on next time. I missed you girls. Yeah. Next time we'll have a full house. Cause last time I wasn't, we haven't had all five of us on yet. So we will hopefully make that happen soon. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Jean, take us out. And tackle some different IEP right. issue. All right. Well, since there's yes, plenty. There's not. It's, it's, this is a, um, like, I, I always, I even like one of the last phone calls I had with Lisa, I was like, I just need to talk to you just for a short period of time. An hour and a half later, we have yeah. gone off onto a completely <laughs> different tangent. And I'm like, I swear this was not my intention. Before I even reached out to you, I set the intention. I'm like, this is all we're going to talk about. And then we just <laughs> cannot help ourselves. So even like, even no, in this conversation, no, I was like, no. we're going to kind of get this in an hour. I don't know. But like, I want to make sure that we hit certain top, like, top, you know. Right, focus. right. No. And it's good. No, I had it in my head too. I was like, must stop by a certain time today because I actually have an IEP meeting that I have to, for you ladies, sorry, you didn't get the shower <laughs> version, but uh, the I'm, not, I'm not showered too. either. I have to go do that. <laughs> the shower. Well, so. Yeah, on the list. We'll get you off then so you can get going. Um, So thank you all for listening to us. And I, we want to know all of your feedback from this episode, especially if you found it helpful, what you feel like may be missing, obviously, so that we can uh, carve that into future episodes or maybe even expand on that after the episode obviously publishes. So um, this is an ongoing, ever evolving conversation. So Thank you. We're so grateful for you. Love you. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.